back to the Title IX College Sports Conversations podcast. I'm Bonnie Bernstein and thrilled to be able to spend some time today with Janet Judge, a renowned sports attorney who is the co-founder and partner of the Education and Sports Law Group up in Boston. Janet, interestingly enough, and perfect for this podcast, has a particular affinity for Title IX cases. Not surprising that because Janet was just a three-sport star at Harvard, no big deal, soccer, basketball, track and field, and took the Crimson to three NCAA soccer tournaments, including the 1980 title game. Janet, uh, we're going to dive all into the college stuff. However, as a Maryland alum, I was kind of geeked to learn that you were one of the first girls to play baseball in the state of Maryland after Title IX was passed. So I just need you to spill on the story. Yeah, I, I you know, sports has been, sports has just been so important to me throughout my life. And so when I was eight years old, I was hit by a car. I was the quintessential kid who walked out between two parked cars. Well, they were, everybody's parents told them about growing up not to do. Look both was, ways. Right. Uh, well, you here. know, I ran out in front of some poor unsuspecting person. I uh, was hit, uh, ended up in the hospital for a number of months, ended up in a body cast. And then had to learn to walk and all those other things again. Title IX passed two years later when I was 10 years old. And I had an unbelievably wonderful mother. I'm the youngest of seven who just had me up and going as soon as possible. And two years later, uh, in 1974, I was asked to join the boys baseball uh, team in, called the Hustlers. We can talk about that. Um, in, uh, in Potomac, Maryland. And, you know, it was just this great uh, example of the the really important and wonderful aspects of sport that help kids feel belonging, get them back into speed. And for me, it was the road to, the, the road to recovery as well. Well, so let's think about that, right? It's just a few years after Title IX, boys aren't used to playing with girls, girls aren't used to playing with boys. What was that dynamic like? It was really interesting because having been you know, five older brothers and older sister, we basically had our own, almost had our own uh, baseball team. We had our own stickball team for sure. Um, and so it was just sort of the reason I was invited is because we would play outside all the time with the neighborhood kids. And one of the parents, one of the fathers of one of the, the boys I was playing with came and asked me. Um, but the, the interesting part is I never let my parents come to any of the games because I was actually either hit or walked every at bat because nobody wanted to be the boy that the girl got the hit off of. Um, with, you know, I've told the story before, but what they didn't know is there's a big shift from softball to baseball in terms of ball speed. And, and you know, it was it was new for me. I was trying to figure it out. Um, I wasn't that great at hitting, but I was really good at stealing. So I was happy to be on base and I didn't have any problem. My team. I mean, they were amazing. I think, you know, they got razzed um, and they they really rallied around me. And uh, it was a really wonderful experience. To tell you the truth. That's so awesome to hear. So you were playing baseball and yet the sports you focused on at Harvard were basketball and soccer. And you were a heptathlete as though, you know, trying to rip through an Ivy League academic schedule isn't challenging enough. Why three sports? And, and I guess even more important than the why, how, how did you juggle all of that? Well, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I grew up, my mom was very smart. She realized that early on that sports was a great motivator for all of us. Um, you know, it was, if you were too sick to go to school, you were too sick to play sports. If you, you know, anything that, that was, you know, she wanted to have some motivation on, she really could leverage um, sports. So we, 
we played all the time. By the time I was looking to, to go to school, I was being recruited. That was 1980. Um, Title IX really had made an impact. We were, um, girls were being recruited to, to college and you know, had the opportunity to think about a number of different schools. Very fortunate. Recruited for basketball. The other thing that I knew about myself is I always needed to be in some sort of organized sport to be able to stay in, in shape and also to organize the hours of my day. I always performed better academically when I was playing sports and my mom always knew that too. So that, that fed into that. When I got to Harvard, I was really excited to play basketball. It was my primary sport, exactly what I wanted to do. And I decided to go out for the soccer team to get in the best possible shape I could be in for the basketball. And you said earlier that I was in three NCAA tournaments. I just want a little caveat. The first one was actually a, a, a bunch of college coaches across the country organized the national championship. Well, the NCAA didn't sponsor women's sports yet. So a group of mostly male coaches of women's um, soccer teams, some women got together and put together this national tournament in Colorado Springs. And the joke was we were fifth in the East and third in the country because we were able to get ourselves to the national championship. Whereas other people who did better than, than we had done on the East Coast were not able to get there. We were fortunate. We stayed in the homes of alums and, uh, and, and we played and had a fabulous experience. The next year, it was the AIAW National Championship. So I got to play in that. That was down at UNC. All the teams together at the same time, round robin, really amazing experience. And the third year was the NCAA tournament. It's you must have such incredible perspective about the growth, given that you were part of a first and in, in the first NCAA tournament. What sort of unique perspective does that give you? Well, it was, you know, I feel I feel really fortunate. I feel like I had front row seats to benefit from so many things that that many of the mentors around me had provided for me. Right. The, the ability I walked in. I remember walking out on the field and, and I was a goalkeeper. I had, you know, I'd been sort of transformed into being a goalkeeper. I had been a field player. Um, and I can remember still to this day walking out on the field at the, at the NCAA tournament and saying, I never, ever thought that I would play in a national tournament. I didn't even know women would have national tournaments, right? It was really, really an amazing kind of thing. And I enjoyed every single minute of that experience. And uh, even though, you know, we eventually were, we, uh, our experience ended in that national tournament on penalty kicks and I was the goalkeeper. So I just would like to leave it at that. Ooh, ooh. But you know what you do? There's, I think goalkeepers in any sport are special people. Like there's, there's a little bit of crazy in you. <laughs> it is. I, I thought you were going to from start to finish. Yeah, I'm sorry. That is absolutely, you stand back there and you say, come on, come on, come on. And then people come on and you say, oh, oh, here you coming. Yeah, the, no, there is a, um, it's an interesting, an interesting mentality. Um, but I, I really, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed playing basketball as well. And then I loved um, track and field. So I, I was just very, very fortunate uh, to be at a time in sport where there wasn't uh, non-traditional competition opportunities for women at the Ivy League in particular at the time. And so I was able to play three different sports seasons, even though there was some overlap and, you know, mother, many other people don't have that opportunity. Did you go to Harvard thinking I'm going to be on a law track and even specifically a sports law track, or did that evolve over time? 
Yeah, no, I was pre-med all the way. Um, I was I was going to be a pediatrician. Uh, I had it all mapped out. I, you know, I had spent a lot of time in children's hospital as a, as a child. I was treated really well. I, I have great affection and affinity for, you know, those good people who are uh, taking care of children in children's hospital across the country. Um, and and uh, I I switched majors a couple of different times. Something about government just clicked for me towards the end. And I just, in fact, I had to double up courses and that was fine because I just absolutely loved everything I was, I was learning about. In fact, you know, there was, it was, we were learning a lot about Gorbachev at the time, who's just recently passed. Um, so it's brought a lot of that back as well, because I did a lot of work around what was then Soviet American politics. And uh, now we're looking at Russian studies. So what was it? Was there a sort of seminal moment where there was a click and you're like, okay, we're going into medicine. We like government, sports law. Do you remember that moment? Well, it's, it was sort of it sort of evolved. So when I when I um, when I played sports in college, I actually had my eligibility taken away. So I was captain of the soccer team. Um, in the first game of my senior year, uh, I had I had been hit so hard that uh, took a hit to my ribs, broke my ribs in the front and back, had a medical red shirt for the year, meaning right, I got an extra year of eligibility if I wanted to come back the next year to play. Um, and I did do that. I did want to, and I did do that. I was captain of the team though, and we were fundraising to go and play in Europe. And I went to Europe with the team as, you know, as part of the Harvard team with our coach and everything else. And I came back and uh, came back and went through preseason the next fall and realized then uh, that I had lost my eligibility. The NCAA had ruled that going to Europe was the end of my medical redshirt year. It's a rule they've since changed uh, that impacted a couple of us. Um, and I think that was, you know, that was really sort of the impetus for maybe I should do something around sports law. But even after then, I didn't immediately go to law school. I was an assistant athletic director for Harvard at Harvard for five years. Um, my mother really, again, you'll hear about my mom a lot. My mom really wanted to me to think about law or medicine or business school. Um, and, uh, you know, something about law school really was interesting to me. Again, when I was going through law school, I also was coaching at Simmons, a division three school. So I coached basketball and soccer at the time, which was great because they didn't care if I was stressing about my legal classes. So it kept me on track. Um, and then after law school, well, during law school, I, I, uh, I actually was a research assistant for Professor Avi Soyford. He's a First Amendment scholar. And, and during law school, it was really about constitutional law. I was inspired about the First Amendment, which is, you know, and you're in uh, journalism, one of the most complicated areas of law that there is. I was really inspired about uh, constitutional law. Um, and he he encouraged me to go and get a seek a courtship, a, a clerkship uh, in the First Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, federal court. I was really, really lucky to get that clerkship with uh, Judge Norm Stahl. Um, and he was on both appellate panels of the Brown v. Cohen case one of the seminal Title IX uh, cases out there, one of the first uh, court cases to apply Title IX to a college athletics program. And that, and he was the judge who sat me down and said, Janet, figure it out. Like, you love sports and you love law. What are you going to do with this? Well, right, tell really? me more about that. I mean, did you have the chance to be in court, hear the case? I mean, can you possibly realize in real time 
when you're part of that, even though it was in a small way, that this is going to monumentally shift the way we think about Title IX? Right. Well, so I wasn't on the uh, writing on the case, right? There were a number of different law clerks. I was in the courtroom to hear the oral argument. I heard, saw Deborah Break get up and, and you know, she was um, on behalf of the, of the women who brought the case forward. Um, it was uh, it was a seminal moment. We I think we all knew in the courtroom that this was a, a major case. Nobody really even knew how Title IX applied. Right, this is the 1990s, and Title IX was passed in 1972, and people were still trying to figure out what it meant. What struck you most about the conversation you heard in the courtroom? Um, I think I think it was the conversation about what sport opportunities mean, right, and what equity means. And, you know, there was still, and we still have it to this day, a, a discussion about, in, in that case, for example, two men's programs were eliminated and two women's programs were eliminated. So there was an argument being made that that was equitable, right? That, that you had, you know, the same number of sports programs on the men's and women's side. So Title IX should not apply. But when you looked at the overall participation for men and women, it wasn't equitable either before those programs were eliminated or after those programs were eliminated. So it was an opportunity for the court to think about how is this law going to to apply. Now there's, you know, there's a lot of information in the implementing regulations, right? Those are the late regulations that come out after a law is passed that talk about is this. They also have the force of law. They talk about how we're going to look at this particular law. We didn't really have a lot of uh, judicial or administrative guidance at that time. We didn't have those documents coming out of the Office for Civil Rights or the, you know, or the government saying this is how we're going to apply Title IX. In fact, those those documents didn't come out until 1996, and we're talking about the Brown case was before that in the early 90s. So it was really interesting to be there and have people arguing almost a case of first impression. There had been other cases that had gone before. Um, but this was a really interesting case around sport elimination that was, you know, really challenged the judges to think about where college sports was going. And there was a, a divided opinion on this. So it wasn't as straightforward. You know, when we talk to our guests on this series about what resonates most with them about Title IX, obviously they speak, especially some of our younger guests, talk about the growth opportunity for girls and women in sports having the sort of deep understanding of all of the elements of the law, what deeper perspective can you add here in terms of impact, whether that's around, you know, some of the um, sexual misconduct or the education piece? Yeah, we, we've been, um, so when I first started practicing law, uh, you know, the sports stuff was sort of the side gig, right? That there, there wasn't really anybody doing what I do out there right now at the time. And I was a trial lawyer and, and also an employment lawyer, civil rights lawyer. So a lot of it had some of, some of the, the overlap. I think we're really trying to figure out where Title IX was going. And we saw you know, pretty quickly a, a real um, sort of explosion in terms of participation opportunities because schools actually got out there pretty quickly ahead and started adding sports programs. We had a certain period of time where the law was not enforced and we don't need to, to go down that road. Um, and then there was a Civil Rights Restoration Act in 88 and the law came back. What I've seen in, in my sports practice is, you know, amazing growth of opportunity, concurrent with growth of opportunity on the men's side as well, right? So the women's side has been growing and continuing to expand, so have, so have men's participation opportunities. 
We've also seen a real growing awareness of what equity means, right? In the overall treatment, day-to-day -day experience of our student athletes, and the fact that if we really are honest with ourselves and saying that these are education opportunities, and we have a lot of discussion about where sports is going right now, um, and we're in federally funded colleges and universities or you know K through 12 programs, are we treating our males and females overall equitable? And I think we've seen tremendous growth in the support benefits and opportunities given to males and females across the board. But I think the most rapid growth has happened uh, in the women's side. I know you've done a lot of work and it's one of the reasons why I was asking around sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. And when I think about areas that aren't accentuated enough or maybe we're not education, uh, educated enough, if you will, um, that's one of the areas that comes to mind for people who might not have that aspect of Title IX on their radar. How is that an important part of the Title IX conversation? The Title IX is an anti-discrimination law, right? So we had the Civil Rights Law of 1964, which dealt with all kinds of discrimination, both intentional and systemic around um, you know, sex, race, all different kinds of areas. Title IX came around in 72 to, to to sort of close a loophole in the education space. But the language in Title IX talks about discrimination on the basis of sex. Now that, that encompasses a whole broad range. It can be anything from uh, athletics, uh, gender equity that we talked about because that's the only place on campus where you have, or one of the only places where you have gender segregated sport opportunities or educational opportunities. Um, but also discrimination on the basis of sex that includes sexual violence and sexual harassment. Um, the NCAA has been talking about sexual harassment um, uh, education for years. They brought me in years and years ago to talk about it also applies in the, in the sexual harassment context as well. I think people were so conditioned that Title IX was just an athletics equity law. They didn't think of it in the broader context of being a general anti-discrimination law that, that has to do with sexual harassment, sexual violence, Somebody not getting into a course or program be on the basis of sex. Somebody not, you know, somebody being tre treated uh, disparately uh, in band program because of their sex, or what's going on in athletics. It's a very broad-based law with far-reaching application. We are at such an interesting time because as we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the sports sphere is being hit with a conversation that, I mean, quite frankly, we haven't encountered before. And, and that is around gender identity. How do we accommodate trans athletes? Many states uh, clearly do not feel there is a place for trans athletes. What are you experiencing with people who are coming into your practice and, and wanting and needing to have these types of conversations to gain clarity about the possible? Yeah, I think, I think there's, um, to be clear, my practice is representing colleges and universities, right? So it would be, um, you know, colleges and universities having this conversation. And yes, there are plenty of colleges and universities that are having this conversation and are really trying to figure out um, what their opportunities and obligations are in this space. Um, so you have two, two places for me. You have a, a legal point of view and you have a personal point of view. I believe that, um, you know, men and women, including trans men and trans women, are entitled to equitable opportunities to participate in sport. Um, I want to be quite careful about how I talk. We're talking about real people who have had, you know, faced enormous challenges um, and continue to sort of get 
um, talked about in the social media space and other spaces in ways that we would never talk about um, people face to face. And, and I just think this is a very emotional um, and important topic. Um, I think that we're going to hear from the Office for Civil Rights. I think they've, they've pretty much uh, talked about the Department of Education and said that they're going to be issuing new guidance and we'll see how that uh, plays out. Um, you know, we had an opinion in the Bostock case, and that was a Supreme Court case that talked about under Title VII, which is an employment statute about gender identity and expanded it. I think um, I think it's going to be uh, an, an evolving space. Um, but I, you know, I don't believe that that uh, uh, you're a woman for some things and not for other things. I think, uh, you know, I, for me, I think the, for, for people is you know, a trans woman is a trans woman, a trans girl is a trans girl. And and we have all kinds of uh, physical um, differences, some that benefit us uh, on the sports field and, and a variety of different ways. Um, you know, Michael Phelps has got all kinds of advantages over other uh, athletes. We have uh, similar things on the woman's side. Um, so I, you know, I'm about opportunity and about the amazing um support that that uh, sports have been shown uh, for girls generally. And I think I do not think trans women and trans girls participating in sports is the end of Title IX. I think that's a false narrative. Yeah. You uh, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you work with universities, conferences, the NCA all across the board on Title IX compliance to date. What would you consider I don't know, your, your crowning achievement, whether that is a case, your involvement in a conversation, um, working with the NCAA to create its gender equity manual, where do you feel you have been most impactful in propelling Title IX forward? You know, it's, it's really not about me. I think the, the, you know, it's a, you know, it's an interesting question. I think the when I step back and think about what am I most proud about, what I, what I've done in, in over my career, it's it's providing education. I mean, we are you know five decades out, and the misinformation around um, what Title IX does and does not require the the sort of continuing to blame Title IX in certain respects when when um, you know some some people are denied opportunities instead of expanding opportunities on the other side. Um, all those sorts of things. I think my what I'm most proud about is the fact that I jumped in both feet to uh, educate. Um, I, you know, I do it every chance I get. I talk to anybody I possibly can. I I volunteer to to have discussions. Um, anybody who wants to talk about it, I love it. I love talking to faculty, athletic representatives. Any opportunity I can get in front of presidents, I am there. Um, Amy Wilson and others at the NCAA have been so generous in in allowing me. Uh, a platform to get in front of a number of um, athletic administrators and presidents and FARs to be able to have this discussion. Um, and, and you know, I've really tried awfully hard to have safe discussions, right? You close the door, you can ask any question you want, you can say anything you want, you're, you're not going to be shamed or embarrassed because I think unless we have some really thoughtful um, discussions around Title IX, around what people think it means, um, about fears they have about it, uh, misinformation they may have. Uh, and th until we have those discussions and have a, a you know, a, a honest and thoughtful back and forth, uh, then we're not really gonna move it very far. Uh, I've had 
phenomenal discussions with um, coaches of men's sports programs uh, who have walked into the room uh, very unhappy about um, um, being asked to sit down and talk to me. I had in the sexual misconduct space when I did some training, it was outside of athletes, athletics. I actually had people walk in with their mouths duct taped um, to make a statement about the fact that they were at a mandatory sexual misconduct training. Um, and I had those people come back and talk to me afterwards and say, okay, I learned a lot today. It's not what I thought it was walking in. You didn't spend an hour blaming, um, you know, blaming men or blaming uh, uh, everybody else for um, equity. You explained what equity is and talked about, you know, why, you know, that's, this is my, here you'll get it. It should be a core value. Um, it is one of the most fundamental things about sports. We are segregated by gender and if the people who are making the decisions who are thinking about the future of college sports who are are looking to talk about nil austin everything else that's on the table don't have a profound understanding of how title IX and gender equity works then we're really we're really in trouble when we're thinking about the future outside of the education piece janet i I'm, there are very few people who have their finger more firmly on the pulse of title nine than you knowing everything you know, doing everything you've done, speaking to all of the people you have over the years, what in your opinion is the biggest opportunity for growth in the march toward equity? Yeah, I think the I think we're seeing it, the value of women's sports. I mean, I think that um, you know, there are silver linings in many things out there. I think the 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 issue that happened at the women's um, basketball championship sparked a real discussion and a real national dialogue. Um, and I think as a result of that uh, report, we had a little bit more insight into the economics of college sport. Um, we've seen some real rallying points around viewership, um, interest in sport, what that really means, how we monetize it, how we actually get um, uh, viewership, how we're thinking about um, um, how people value uh, uh, this whole enterprise around college sports. I think I think the more we have those discussions, the more we um, you know are able to expose the general public to how exciting sport is generally, males and females. Um, you know everything. Hey, I'm a newfound fan of curling. I mean, there's so much out there that Who is so is exciting. Who is curling? Come right? on. And Norway curling because of the cool uniforms. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I just think, I think there are so many exciting opportunities. I think the danger is where, where Title IX is used sort of as a scapegoat. We could do this, but Title IX. Or, you know, what's our obligation? Okay, we want to do all these cool and exciting things, but what does Title IX mean? I mean, it, you know, incorporate Title IX into that. How are we moving forward? How are we going to make this uh, a, an equitable and exciting enterprise um, that benefits all of our male and female student athletes? Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's the focus and that's the excitement. And, and uh, I just think more people need to, to buy into it. And who knew? I mean, I would have never anticipated that we got the enlightening comment from you that we should really all try curling. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> exactly. That's, thank exactly. you for that. Janet Judge, renowned sports attorney. Janet, thank you for your lifelong commitment to seeking equity in athletics, the impact you've made. Appreciate your time and the great work you do. And thanks to all of you for taking the time to watch the Title IX College Sports Conversation podcast. Check out all of the podcasts on the NCAA's YouTube channel and social media channels, and we'll see you again soon.